self-advocacy is the single thing I think women can do to get out of our own way. That was Jessica Gendron, president and CEO of the Center for Leadership Excellence, talking about the disparities and inequities of experiences between non-diverse and diverse women in corporate leadership positions. And this is IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. This podcast is brought to you by Cummins, Inc. Well, hello, everyone. And thank you so much for joining me on the third episode of IBJ's The Freedom Forum with yours truly, Angela B. Freeman. On our previous episodes, we've been talking with female entrepreneurs focusing on different areas of business, including venture capital, construction, STEM, or tech, and we're going to continue that conversation today. It's my pleasure to chat with Jessica Gendron. Jessica is the president and CEO of the Center for Leadership Excellence, which helps women shatter glass ceilings by studying successful leaders and strengthening their core competencies necessary to advance. Jessica also advises companies and organizations on building inclusive and equitable cultures through implementation of database strategies. Finally, Jessica also hosted a podcast called Ladies Leading, which as a guest during the pandemic was one of my first introductions to being on a podcast. So thank you, Jessica, for allowing me to return the favor and for joining me today here on the Freedom Forum. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation with you, Angela. Yeah, I am too. So Jessica, will you please tell our listeners a bit about you, your educational and professional background, and any other factors that led you to becoming a female entrepreneur who owns a coaching and motivational speaking business? <laughs> well, I grew up in Illinois and went to college at Eastern Illinois University, got my bachelor's degree in art. Okay. And as it turns out, you can't make a living doing art unless you're like really good at art. And really I'm, good. And, and um, you know, halfway through my senior year, I had like a senior year life crisis of like, what am I going to do with my life? Yeah. So um Ended up going to graduate school at Indiana for higher education administration, uh, masters of science in, in masters of science in education. So, from there, I started to work in higher education, and then I left higher education to work for an organization that served higher education, yeah. just private sector. And it was there that I sort of saw that there were inequities in the workplace and that there were ways that women were treated differently that men were not treated. And for the longest time, I felt like it was just me. Yeah. And I would get so frustrated and so angry with some of the things I was experiencing that that's sort of what led me to this place of wanting to work with women to help them be successful in spite of the obstacles yes. while also simultaneously trying to deconstruct patriarchy. Yeah. You know, it was just sort of those personal experiences of encountering all those roadblocks on my climb to leadership that made me want to do this work and 
and start a business to do that. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for that. So tell us about the Center for Leadership Excellence, its mission, and why your organization fills a specific gap, or many, many gaps, uh, needed by women leaders and executives to be successful. Yeah, so our mission at the Center for Leadership Excellence is um, we believe that great leaders and great culture create great organizations. So we're focused on helping leaders be successful, and that looks like education programs, training, speaking, coaching from emerging leaders all the way up to executive leaders. But what that also looks like is helping organizations create great culture. And I think culture for so many leaders is really far down on the to-do list and it just keeps getting pushed further and further down. And we hear from people pretty consistently and particularly in today's environment of, you know, the great resignation everyone's looking to make better culture and to create better culture. And in the environment of post-George Floyd, the diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation is added on top of that. And what we do is we help organizations assess the state of their culture, particularly in the areas of diversity, equity, and inclusion, bias, discrimination, those sort of things. And then we help them see a path to and strategy to enhance and improve that culture so that not only can they be more diverse, but they can be a a diverse place to work that's a good place for people of diverse identities to work. Yeah. You know, and I think that's why we focus so much on leadership training for women and helping women advance because we see those holes in the work that we're doing with companies, helping them strategize on their culture. Bias still exists. Discrimination still exists. And so, you know, we want to help women be successful in spite of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. So before we dig into those nuts and bolts, because I definitely want to touch on, you know, I want to touch on that. (laughs) I want to talk about my own biases. You just mentioned biases still exist. And we recognize that everyone has unconscious biases, right? And I argue that many unconscious or what we label as implicit biases are a lot more like conscious and explicit biases sometimes. But that's a topic for another day. (laughs) At, At any rate, I recognize that as a woman in STEM, I do have, I think, probably some particular personal biases. And, and one is about female coaching and motivational speaking companies. I recognize that because I have so many friends who have these companies yeah. and they're super successful. For example, in, in my limited purview, any female executive who has significant tenure or experience in their field of expertise and decide, you know what, I'm tired of the rat race. <laughs> I'm tired of corporate America. They can decide to start a business, hang a shingle and be, and be a coach or a motivational speaker. In my mind, that's a bit different than a technical consultant. But I also realize I'm not really knowledgeable in this area. I have no idea what it takes. So you tell me, Jessica, please inform me and our listeners on what are the credentials and the criteria and the characteristics that are required to become an entrepreneur as a bona fide coach or an executive coach? You know, it's really interesting that you ask that question. In a lot of instances, there's really not a lot of criteria to be a motivational speaker, right? I think 
if you have a, an, a message that inspires and empowers people and somebody wants to pay you to get up on stage to do it, then I guess you're a motivational okay, speaker. Okay, okay, okay. Um, you know, there are motivational speakers that are significantly more talented and more successful. And those are people who have subject matter expertise or have lots of practices doing those things. But for the most part, there's really not a lot of criteria there. Okay. Now on the coaching side, I think that there's a difference between somebody who's a subject matter expert and somebody who's a coach in a particular vertical or industry. And so you can work in an industry and have, be a subject matter expert, but that doesn't always make you qualified to be a coach. Okay. And I think that people who want to coach and people who want to help others be successful in life or in their professional roles, you probably need to go through some coaching courses because just giving people advice based on your own experiences in a similar industry or in the same industry is not enough to actually help people be successful. And in fact, you're probably doing your clients a disservice. Right. And that's more just like mentoring, right? That's what we do anyway, right? Tell people based on our experiences and similar industries, this was the challenges I faced. This is how I overcome it. That's more like mentoring and what we do on a day-to-day basis anyway. Yeah. Okay. So, So I think you probably need to go through some coaching courses, be certified as a coach, go through an accrediting body to to take those courses or be certified. I don't think you need a certification, but you certainly need to understand foundational and fundamental process and systems that coaches use to help drive performance in people. Okay. All right. See, that's good to know. In your experience in coaching and dealing with um, women leaders in Indiana and nationwide, what are some of the biggest challenges that women leaders encounter that are not experienced by their male counterparts and that can often drive women out of leadership roles or out of corporate, you know, leadership altogether? Yeah, this is sort of a challenging question to answer because I think that what we try to do when we talk about gender bias and the discrimination or bias that women experience in the workplace that maybe their male counterparts don't is we try to make it really simple and it's not simple at all. It's (laughs) actually a very complex issue. We're talking hundreds of years of policy systems, process, infrastructure created by white men for the benefit of white men, you know, so... So there's a lot of stuff there to unpack. And I think the problem I often have with this conversation is we really try to oversimplify it. And it's, yeah. it's, it's really not just not that simple, yeah, yeah. right? So, you know, we could look at a number of different issues. We could look at things like women are the primary caregivers in most family structures, right? So because of that need for women to be primary caregivers, we often can't stay late. We often can't do things in the evenings. We often can't take all those road trips that we're being asked to take. We often can't take on more responsibility at certain times in our lives because of family obligations. And those things are things that we think about when being asked to do that stuff. Whereas in many situations, men don't have to think through those things or don't have to say no to those things because of family obligations. So there's some of that cultural stuff related to women's role in society. You know, but then there's also things like, well, society shows and the studies show and the research shows that, you know, women are promoted less. Women are often given feedback about their communication where men are given feedback on things that they can do better with specific examples 
examples of how they can improve their work. Yeah. Women are uh, considered less for promotions. Women are tapped less for mentoring. Women are tapped less for professional development opportunities. You know, even when they work for female-led organizations, right. even when their supervisors female, that women experience those things at higher levels than their male counterparts do. So none of the solutions to those things are simple. So it's hard to answer that question. I think what I will say is that some of this is related to the way that we are socialized as women growing up. And one of the things that I think often gets in women's way in the workplace is we are socialized not to be competitive and that competitiveness in women should be seen negatively. And so when we see a woman advocating for herself, for a promotion, for a raise, for more responsibility, to take on a role, whatever that may be. Well, that was my idea. I said that. Right. (laughs) In a meeting. Exactly. (laughs) That we often see those things negatively, and so most women shy away from doing that stuff. And I think self-advocacy is the single thing I think women can do to get out of our own way. Yeah. And to be more successful in the workplace is to advocate for ourselves more and to stop living under the thumb of the stigma associated with it because I really think that's a piece of it. Men don't give it a second thought. Yeah. You know, they advocate for themselves. They'll say in a meeting, that's my idea. Yeah, yeah. You know, they'll call somebody out for that. If they want a raise, they walk into their boss's office and say, I'd like a raise. Yeah, yeah. If they want to apply for a job, they'll apply for a job where they meet 20% of the criteria, whereas women won't apply for it unless they meet 90% of the criteria. Right, absolutely. So I think there's some, there's some, to be fair in this conversation, I think there's some work that women have to do as well to get out of our own way and not just blame the men for all the problems. Oh, oh, and that's absolutely true. And I'm going to touch on that just a bit more. But there's no question. And it's part of why women's empowerment, professional development, development continues to be sought after because women are always looking to see how they can improve, what they can do better, how can they navigate around the stigmas and the stereotypes in order to be successful. That So that's unquestionably true. And so when we talk about women leaders generally, you've already touched on this, at least you and I understand, and I think people are beginning to more um, broadly accept that all women leaders are simply not treated equally in the, in the work workplace. In fact, the data shows and continues to demonstrate that in just about all business fields and all industries, Caucasian women or white women have significantly benefited from corporate diversity initiatives and programs over the last two decades, Mm -hmm. while the number and advancement of diverse women in corporate executive leadership really hasn't moved at all. And worse, in some industries, the number of diverse women has decreased, particularly in light of the pandemic and, as you said, the great resignation. This failure rate of our corporate diversity programs are also historically reflected in the way so many social and political rights and liberties have been enjoyed by Caucasian or white women long before women of color were deemed legally worthy for the same. Note in point, we just celebrated the centennial of women's suffrage last year. Mm -hmm. But we all know that Caucasian and white women obtained the right to vote in 1920 while that same liberty didn't occur for black or indigenous, Latinx, Asian, and other women of color until almost 50 years later with the Voting Rights Act. The same 
Clean Voting Rights Act, should I say, that Congress is currently tasked to reiterate as the law of the land in the name of the late John Lewis. Hello, that shows you where we are societally right 100%. now. hundred percent. But yet you and I met several years ago at a women in high tech event where you were a speaker at our executive women's forum and you were one of the first non-diverse women. You've stayed in my mind. We've been friends. I've reached out to you. You've reached out to me because I really saw and heard in your presentation about these very topics in a public way that I had never seen before. You, you talked about these topics that didn't make me, as a diverse woman, feel like you, as a Caucasian woman, were capitalizing on all these atrocious facts and stats around diversity. Instead, you talk with real empathy and righteous indignation, the same kind <laughs> that I feel so often, right, about how bad diversity and inclusion really is in our businesses and sometimes the horrific experiences of diverse women in business and leadership. Mm. So can you advise us as to some of the disparities that you've identified in the experience of Caucasian women leaders as compared to diverse female leaders and why this disparity and experiences sometimes can cause an even greater decline in the number of diverse women that we actually see in corporate leadership roles and positions. Yeah, so I was recently reading something um, about this, and and to be honest with you, I, I, I looked for the source and I couldn't remember which article it was, but I will find it. And, and I think that, you know, what we see a lot of times is that race trumps gender. That's right. And as much as I hate to say that, race trumps gender. And so white women in particular have benefited from the fact that we're white and that our gender has played less of a role in our success because of our race. And I think that that needs to be said more and more loudly because I think that that plays a a big role in, in what we're talking about here. When we look at gender, and the intersection of any other marginalized identity, whether it be race, religion, sexual orientation, ability, whatever it is, when you intersect gender with any of those identities, it gets much, much harder to be successful. So if you're female and something else, you are up against 1,800 times more hurdles than a white woman would. And the truth of the matter is that white women are going to be the people, if we're looking at a white woman with a bunch of other women of color or women of diverse identities, the white woman's going to get picked simply because white men feel safer and more comfortable with white women than they would a woman of color. And so I don't know if there's a lot of really great statistics. I mean, we could look at every statistic that breaks out by race and and know that the statistics for women, black women, Latin women, Latina women, any of the BIPOC identities, they're going to, they're their percentages are worse. Yes. And that's the truth of it. I, I appreciate that because, again, you were the first white woman to say it so adamantly. It wasn't questionable. It's not something to be discussed. It's factual. And it is factual. Mm-hmm. It's statistical. But also to talk about it in a way that, again, didn't leave me like, well, you're really capitalizing. Because I will tell you, I think that is a struggle with a lot of diverse women in diverse organizations or you know diversity training where you're telling us that but the person that's teaching us this 
is the white woman. You know, yeah. it's challenging to wrap your head around that and, and not see, well, you're somehow benefiting this. So I, I appreciate you, um, again, chatting with me about this because I know these topics are are challenging and make people uncomfortable. And, and so I, I personally believe that everyone should use their power, their privilege, and their platform mm -hmm. to help and support those without, whether those people look like you and people who don't look like you. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Cummins, Inc. Cummins, Inc., a global power solutions leader, is proud to partner with IBJ's The Freedom Forum. For Cummins, diversity and inclusion is a core value of our company, and we are committed to creating work environments and communities that are welcoming to all people. Combined with technological innovation, Diversity and inclusion is a critical element of Cummins' continued success. It's how we attract and retain top talent and better serve our customers around the world and create stronger communities. We're back with Jessica Gendron, President and CEO of the Center for Leadership Excellence on the Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman, discussing tools and tips for women and diverse executive leaders. In light of the disparity of the benefit evidence in the diversity data you and I just talked about, it seems clear that white women are helping other white women advance into leadership at a high rate. However, I don't necessarily know if I see that happening as often where white women are helping diverse women in those same leadership opportunities. And I say that recognizing my very own bias in that the only significant career-altering penalty I've ever experienced was directly at the hands of a Caucasian woman. Mm. So I want to say that again, a white woman, not a white man, yeah. you know? So let me shout out to all the white men who are allies and who support and uplift women and diverse women and feel like they do get a bad rap in the day of talking about diversity. I see you. I know you're there. And, and I want to, to say... Um, that there are plenty honorable and authentic white men and women mm -hmm. who absolutely are allies and truly support all people. But as women, we also all know that there are plenty of women who absolutely will not support another woman, particularly <laughs> if she's a diverse female. Mm. So, so Jessica, I want to ask you, again, based on your experience, what are your thoughts around whether Caucasian or white women should feel or have any additional onus or responsibility to use their power and privilege, not just to help other white women to and through leadership opportunities, but also to help and advance diverse women who've not enjoyed the same progression or advancement to leadership that's been expedited in so many companies by corporate diversity programs programs and initiatives that, again, is clearly and factually and statistically have benefited white women. What are your thoughts around that? Well, the, the answer is yes. <laughs> you know, the answer is uh, we absolutely should have responsibility over that as white women. I think that this is probably a time to talk about the difference between real allyship and what I call 
performative allyship. Okay, yeah. There's a lot of people who see allyship as what I would consider performative allyship. Saying I support women publicly on my social media. Right. Saying I'm an ally. You know, having women on my team and supporting them. Getting to know women in the workplace. Those sort of things are not... That's not allyship. That's friendship. That's good supervision. Right. You know, what real allyship looks like is mentoring people to be successful, speaking their name in rooms that they're not present in, right, right. ensuring that they have seats at the table. And I think that, you know, when we talk about gender equity and equality, what that means for us as white women is that we have to understand that while we are women and that there is bias as white women that we do encounter on a day-to-day basis, that we have a significant amount of privilege and we have to leverage and use that privilege to lift all the women that come behind us, regardless of their identities. And I think that that is, sometimes women get, we get a, white women get a pass or we give ourselves a pass. We say, well, I'm a victim here too, right? I've experienced bias. And you have. I've experienced discrimination. I'm a minority here in business. And the truth of the matter is, yes, that's absolutely true. But we also have a significant amount of privilege in so many places. And we have to use that privilege to be a true ally for women who are not white, women of marginalized or underrepresented identities. And what that means is when you're sitting in a room and you're looking around, you need to be asking yourself, who's not in this room that should be? Right, right. And whose voice isn't represented here that should be? And when someone interrupts another woman in a conversation, and I have privilege and power in that space, I should say, uh, I'm sorry, Angela was talking. Yeah. Or I think I heard Angela say that five minutes ago. Right, right. Right? And using our power and privilege to give them voices in places where we can give them voices. Absolutely. As much as I love to celebrate the women's suffrage movement in 100 years, I look at the history of how women, white women were able to earn the right to vote, and so much of that journey was on the backs of black women. Yeah, absolutely. And... And I think that that part of the story is like the dirty that we sh- that we sweep under the rug. And what we've got to do is just start having more honest conversations about this stuff. Yes, we have benefited as white women from the work of black women. Yes, we have benefited as white women because we are white. And it is time for us to use those privileges to help other women advance and help women of diverse identities advance at the same rates as us. Use that power to help other people. That's all we're saying, yeah. right? That's that's the only message. And, and I don't see why that stirs such, you know, anger and frustration with so many who it's okay. Like that's part of the history, just like everything that's happening today will be part of the history for the next hundred years. And I hope they have the opportunity to read it in true fashion, not, you know, make it anything different than what it is. I think that's okay. Um, I think a piece of that really quick, Angela, is just 
helping people understand the difference between equity and equality. Right. Right. And I think that that's the challenging part of the conversation for a lot of people of helping them understand that, you know, equality means everybody gets equal opportunity. Right. You know, but equity means some populations might get a little extra. Right. To make right, it right. fair. Right. And, and I think that that, you know, when we, when we look at business leaders, they're like, well, I worked my butt off to get to where I am today. Yeah, I know. But you also are male, and, and you benefited from being male, and, and you didn't even realize it. Yeah, that's And right. also, your your dad was an attorney, and so you got into law school because your dad went to that law school. That's right. And you or benefit- certainly helped. Not right. that you weren't qualified, right. or not that you didn't totally. make the grades, but it didn't help that dad was the buddy of the dean. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. those things Or an help. alumni, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You so, know. so it's, it, you know, I think that those are the conversations, I think, that are really challenging for men in particular is to confront privilege that they didn't know that they had, that they didn't know that they benefited from, and the subsequent guilt that often comes with that. And I don't think they know what to do with it. Okay, but let's talk about that, Jessica. Is there really guilt? I I don't see guilt. I see anger. I see resentment that we as people of color had the nerve to call out that you had privilege and opportunity that we did not. And somehow to me, that doesn't equate to you didn't earn it or you're not due or you're not worthy. It's just that you had a little bit of help. I don't see why that's so infuriating to people. Yeah, I don't I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. You know, but I agree with you. Yeah. I think I, I see it as well. And I think that's the challenging part, you know, as long as those are the people leading companies. That's right. And as long as those are the people that are leading businesses, you can hire a black woman to be your vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion, but it ain't going to do a dang thing. Right, right. Because if you've got somebody like that leading a business who believes that about equality and equity, then you're not going anywhere. Yeah. Or you can hire a woman as your VP of whatever, but she's not going higher than VP. She's never going to be in the C-suite. She's never going to, you know, and that also is part of the glass ceilings, the concrete ceilings we talked about for women of color in corporate America. Man, this this is an awesome conversation, but I want to shift gears just a little bit. Well, quite a bit, actually. (laughs) This is October. It is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Mm -hmm. and we want to give honor and show love and support to all the breast cancer patients and survivors that are listening to the Freedom Forum today. One of the reasons I specifically wanted to have you on this month is because you have been so very public about your current battle with breast cancer. Mm. And and while we often get to hear from breast cancer survivors, particularly during October, you know, like you hear from black people during February, (laughs) I've never really had the opportunity to speak to or hear from someone who's actively in their personal battle with cancer or breast cancer. So again, I want to thank you for coming on and being who you are and being so open and vulnerable, not just around one challenging topic that we were already talking about, but yet another challenging topic to share with our listeners about your battle with with breast cancer. So before we um, go into that, I just want to ask you, how do you feel? You look phenomenal. I've said over and over again, like, you look amazing. 
amazing. But how you feel I, physically, spiritually, emotionally? What's this journey been like for you? I feel great. You look great. Uh, thanks. You really do. I'm just going to carry you around with me. <laughs> me, my hype woman. You know, I, I feel great. I The journey has been challenging, but I've weathered the storm fairly well. I didn't have a lot of side effects during chemotherapy. My surgery went really well. Um, I start radiation tomorrow, so I've been pretty good through that. When I got diagnosed, one of the things I started doing was every morning I would wake up and do journaling. Yep. And I would reflect on a Bible verse. I would journal a little bit, and then I would do gratitude journaling. So I spent some time thanking the universe, thanking God for the things in my life that I had and thankful for early diagnosis, thankful for great treatment, thankful for great doctors Mm -hmm. and hospitals and, you know, thankful for great caregivers and all of these things. And, and that has really kept my mind at peace through all of this and, you know, mentally been very strong. And even my doctors all comment about, you've got the right attitude, you, you, you've got such a great attitude about all of this. And so I really think that that's so much of the battle um, and why I've been able to weather the storm so well. Yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me knowing you. Um, that doesn't surprise me at all. And so speaking about that attitude, tell me what qualities or characteristics beyond your attitude, because we, we've already identified that, do you think... Ha- you possess that has empowered you to be so strong and successful as you face, you know, these personal challenges and professional challenges. What I see in you is that through all of this, you're still happy. You're still joyous. You Mm -hmm. you're humble. You're thankful. You still have those qualities that I saw in you several years ago when we first met. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I grew up with a lot of challenges. You know, I grew, I grew up with, you know, not a lot of privilege. And I grew up in a low socioeconomic household and a single parent household and encountered bullying as a kid and had a lot of challenges that I had to overcome. And I think you learn resilience. I think you learn how to bounce back. And I've always had sort of this indignation in me of, um, I'll show you, Yeah, you know, and and maybe it was because I was bullied. Maybe it was because I was a poor kid in a really wealthy area of people not believing in me and and wanting to prove them wrong. And so that's sort of been my life motto is I'll show you. Yeah, I think it just carries through in everything I do. You know, my motto since I've been diagnosed with cancer has been all joy. You know, I said to my husband at the beginning, I don't want to look back at this time in my life and and remember it as the time I had cancer. Yeah. I want to just remember the things that we would have experienced in spite of cancer. That's really been the motto of all joy. Like, let's just soak up the happy and, and forget about all the bad stuff because... We don't have control over that. Yeah. And I want the happy memories, not the bad ones. Yeah, that's that's man, that's so powerful and that's so awesome. So we're we're gonna wrap up here soon, but I I wanna end with a couple final questions. What would be your public service announcement that you would want everyone to know about breast cancer, breast cancer awareness, prevention? It is October, so I don't wanna lose the opportunity to give people some insight as to resources or support organizations or whatever that you found through your journey that's really been helpful that you'd like to, you know, give some public credence to? 
Early detection matters. Yeah, yeah. What people don't really often realize about breast cancer is that it progresses very quickly and it becomes a really treatable, curable cancer and really quickly becomes something that's not tr- not curable. Yeah, yeah. Because of the way breast cancer spreads, it spreads into your lymphatic system, which then goes into your bloodstream. Yeah. And then at that point, it, um, spread everywhere. it spreads everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So early detection really matters in breast cancer. And I'll be honest with you, I found my lump myself. Mm. I found it myself. And I didn't find it because of some magical self-care routine that I do on a monthly basis. I had like a pain in my boob and felt it. And I was like, that's not supposed to be there. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, we have all these shower cards, check yourself in the shower. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't feel mine unless I was laying down on my back. And in fact, every physician I've seen since I've diagnosed has you lay at at least a 45 degree angle, if not flat on your back when they're examining your breasts. Yeah. And so... Don't just do it in the shower. Lay on your bed yeah. and, and feel it that way, too. Yes. And people are like, well, I wouldn't even know what to feel for. Well, here's You'll what it feels like. you know when you feel it. Well, yeah. you know it when you feel it, but here's how I described it. It's like a grape floating around in some jello. Yeah, yeah. You can't really tell what it is, but you know it's not jello. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I think... I, I think routine self-checks are really, really important. I was 39 when I was diagnosed, so it wasn't a mammogram. And you can't even see my tumor on a mammogram. Yeah, You have to do an ultrasound. So even traditional mammograms are not catching this stuff. So I was lucky I caught it. I caught it early. I have stage 1B, which is really, really early. So early detection matters. Self-checks matter. I'm going to give credence to my pals at the American Cancer Society because they have such incredible resources and and support. And so they've got lots of great resources on their website. So I'm going to give credence to them. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. Your point about early detection matters because I just heard the other day that because of the pandemic and all the doctor's offices being um, shut down, so many women have foregone, didn't go get their annual mammogram or Mm. their, you know, annual pap smear. And so there's a even more aggressive cancer being found because they missed that year, they missed that appointment, and now, you know, it's given. So that's a really, really good point to go go get your checkups, get them regularly, do your own self-breast exams, and not just the shower deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> lay on the, lay, and know your body, right? Yep, I mean, know your sure. body, get familiar with your body so that when you feel whatever it is that doesn't necessarily feel normal, you don't have to diagnose it's cancer you just need to know that's not normal that wasn't there a month ago or two months ago or whatever and I need to go in and get it checked out Jessica we we're really at the end of our time are there any parting words any nuggets of wisdom that you'd like to leave our listeners with with regard to women leadership um, executive leadership or the breast cancer journey whatever you think is important to leave our listeners with I'd like to hear from you yeah, I think the the only other thing I would add to everything that we've talked about is I said earlier, this is a really complex problem, you yeah. know, gender bias, yeah. discrimination in the workplace, regardless of if it's race or gender or ethnicity or sexual orientation. I see a lot of organizations really trying to apply 
very simple solutions to these very complex problems. Yeah. And I think that's the thing I get so frustrated about. You can't just hire somebody to be your diversity and inclusion vice president. Right. You can't just have a DEI committee. Yeah. You can't just hire people of color. You can't just, you know, do bring a speaker in or make everybody do a computer training. Yes. Like those things. Or a personality test. Right. Or, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Those <laughs> things are symptoms. Yeah. Those things are symptoms of a bigger problem. Those things are band-aids on gaping wounds yes, that we've got to do work on. We're talking stuff that's cultural. Yeah. And cultural change is long and it's hard. And I think that executive leaders in particular have to take ownership and investment in that cultural shift. Yeah and decide what that means for their organization. But don't dump it on some VP and expect them to figure it out. And don't expect it to be simple because it's not. The last thing I would say about that is when you decide to care about diversity and inclusion in the way it's actually going to matter is when you're probably going to lose some people in your organization who decide that they don't align with it. And you have to be ready to face those consequences. And I just don't think that a lot of businesses have really decided that. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, that's the parting message of if you really want to care about it, there's going to be some fallout. And if you really want to care about it, it's going to take a long time. So powerful. I knew you'd be so powerful and so passionate and purposeful and honest and truth. And and that's so necessary in this day. That's why we have the Freedom Forum, so yeah. we have the freedom to have these kind of conversations. I thank you so much again for joining me today. This has been an awesome conversation. Thank you. Can't wait to continue it offline, but in the in the meantime, thank you again for being here on the Freedom Forum. Thank you, Angela. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. And thanks to Cummins, Inc. for sponsoring the podcast. Please join us again next month for more discussion about diversity, equity, and inclusion in central Indiana business. And thanks again to Jessica Gendron for being a guest on the third episode of IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman.